It was the internet hit of the summer. The simple, free word game that flooded social media with squares displaying your spelling genius. But this week on Download This Show, was Wordle just the distraction that the world kind of needed? Plus, Europe plans to take on those creepy targeted ads we all get. There's new bullying laws. What can you do if you feel like you're being bullied? And we dig into Twitter's strangest new feature. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of, well, not just a brand new episode, brand new year of, uh, of Download This Show. Uh, it is an absolute pleasure to have joining us award-winning freelance journalist Alice Clark. Welcome back to Download This Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, alongside Alice Clark, we have award-winning editor at uh, Byteside, Seamus Byrne. Welcome back to Download This Show. Hello. So good to be back. 2022. Woo! I think this is actually the 10th year of Download This Show. Can you believe they've let us do this for a decade? It's ridiculous. <laughs> Actually, speaking of things that are ridiculous, we're going to start off with NFTs, non-fungible tokens. If that means nothing to you, fear not, we will explain it because Twitter have introduced NFTs for your profile photos, the little photos you have as an icon on your Twitter account, but only for certain people, but also why? Seamus, just walk me through the, uh, the basics of this story. Okay, yes. So uh, there's definitely been a big rise in the, you know, crypto enthusiast crowd on Twitter over recent months. Uh, The spaces side of Twitter is full of those kinds of conversations. And NFTs has been that big area where people have been selling artworks as crypto tokens, non-fungible tokens. So it's a way of introducing scarcity for digital goods. And most of it has been art-based. And so Twitter has introduced a way that you can attach the actual NFT that you own, so not just an, a copy of the image, but we can get into that, uh, but the actual mm. NFT can be attached to your Twitter profile and it gets a special hexagonal version of the, you know, it's a, a rounded-edged hexagon to show that it's not just an ordinary profile picture. So this is uh, for people with Twitter Blue, which is like the the subscription paid-for version of, of Twitter. Let's roll back just for a second here because I feel like crucially to this conversa- crucial to this conversation we need to understand what NFTs actually are, and that job falls to you, Alice Clark. If you had to explain NFTs to a person that has never heard of it before or a person that legitimately struggles with the concept, i.e. me, how would you go about explaining it? Okay, so people who want to... (laughs) Sharp intake of breath. Yeah, people who want to spend a lot of money on something and make an investment in a brand new and -and up-and-coming thing are paying a lot of money to own a link... And on that link, there may be art or music or whatever. And they can now tell people that they own that piece of art or music. And then other people can right-click and also own that art, piece of art or music, but for zero dollars. And also they can house it on their computer, whereas the link, if the server housing that art goes down, they'll just own a link to nowhere. So to that point, Seamus, if somebody ha- goes off and... and- and invests in an NFT for a certain piece of artwork that, that can then become their their profile picture. And suddenly their their so their avatar goes from being a round shape to a uh, hexagonal shape. What is to stop me right clicking, as Alice says, downloading it and then just uploading that picture to my own profile 
albeit in a round circle? Like what is the functional difference there? So there's no functional difference in that sense that, yes, you can right-click it and copy it. I'll do the devil's advocacy on behalf of NFT fans here for a moment. Please do. Uh, the, you know, the difference there is that you can't, within that circle of people who love this uh, new form of you know, digital buying and trading and, and art, uh, you know, art patronage, I guess you could almost say, uh, that, that you can't then go and buy and sell that within that uh, community space because you aren't the person who holds the rights to that token. Now, you could go and mint a new version of exactly the same piece of art on some kind of NFT platform. Minting is the process where you turn essentially a, you know, any image or music or whatever into uh, an official NFT and depending on the platform, it may or may not just let you straight up do that regardless of whether or not you have the right to do that. And this is where it gets pretty complex because fans of the NFTs have already pointed out that uh, Twitter is not using any kind of verification system. So it is true that someone could go and the famous NFTs of the moment have been the Board 8 Yacht Club uh, did I say ape? I meant ape. Board ape yacht club <laughs> uh, NFTs, and they've been worth lots of money, and it makes people feel like they are part of this very exclusive club. But somebody could make a copy of that, use some kind of NFT platform to mint a version, get their hexagonal version, and it would kind of look like they're one of those people who genuinely owns one of those, even if they haven't been verified to be one of those owners. I do like that there is at least some mechanism with which. Uh, people that are making art in a primarily digital environment, Alice, can get paid. But at the same time, I don't know, like every time we have this conversation about non-fungible tokens, I feel like I'm missing something. I feel like I'm waiting for the other shoe to, to drop because it feels like there's no mechanism to kind of control it. I, like, tell me if I'm getting this, tell me if, I, if I'm alone in this, in this concern. You are not alone at all. A lot of NFTs are just images stolen off DeviantArt and the artist makes no money. Like it's, it can be a wonderful way to support artists, but do you know what another great way to support artists is? Pay the artist to create art. You don't even need to use all the, the blockchain and burn down a couple of trees in the Amazon rainforest. You can just give an artist money and then they will send you the art that they have created, possibly even in hard copy. Seamus, would it be fair to, I'm just trying to draw some, some kind of comparison to the, I guess, the physical world. Would it be fair to kind of say that NFTs are a vector for that, you know, are a version of that secondary market where you can get like an official print of, of a digital artwork. Is that the best analogy for it? Yeah, look, I think it does. It works really well that any given artist, you know, sometimes they might say, you know, there's a one and only um, piece of art that someone can buy as an NFT or they might do it as a series, which means, you know, there'll be, you know, 20 versions of that that will be available, uh, you know, as a series. So that sort of stuff is totally a thing. There's an Australian artist. I've really enjoyed watching him have some great success through this. Uh, Boss Logic is his name. He did a lot of commercial art in the, you know, in like games and movies and things like that. And, you know, I've seen that he's had great success by creating these, you know, fascinating kinds of digital art. And I think the long-term view that we sometimes have to take with this is to invoke the metaverse so early in 2022 <laughs> that we will be heading to a point where some of these kinds of virtual spaces will in a much sort of more realistic way be able to say, okay, if 
you're able to put up this artwork inside a certain kind of metaverse space. I don't think there'll ever be a single metaverse, uh, but you know, you might have a virtual space within one of these kinds of worlds, and that world environment would be able to verify the idea that yes, this person is actually the only person who owns this artwork. In that way that in the real world, you know, yes, you can get prints of Picasso's all over the place, but there'll only be a certain gallery that can have the original. And whether, you know, what kind of a debate that leads to, you know, I don't know, but I can see that as we move further down the track, there'll be more of an ability to say, okay, yep, right now there's like a million scams out there in this kind of space and people trying to cheat the system. But as it washes out, that sort of Wild West side of it might calm down and we'll start to have something that has a little bit more uh, interesting sort of stuff going on in it. I download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And speaking of regulation, he says as though that's a sexy hook for people's attention. Uh, The European Parliament have approved an initial proposal to ban certain targeted ads. So if you're sick of getting ads for wedding dresses or workout gear or whatever it is that the algorithm has decided that you're obsessed with, maybe Europe might come to your aid. Alice, can you explain to me exactly what it is that the European Parliament have decided on here? They have decided to limit the amount of information advertisers can collect on you and that they're going to have to ask for permission to track you across websites, much like their current request for uh, can we, will you accept these cookies? Which most of us just kind of click through when you hit on a website. So is that what we can expect with this, Seamus? Uh, so it's, I think there's a, a subtle difference here to the, uh, the rules that Europe brought in that were those cookie rules that have lots of pop-ups all over the internet these days. Um, And that's that it's more about exactly what information can be used for targeting advertising. So it might be that they can still collect some of these specific uh, bits and pieces, but this particular part of the Digital Services Act is about stopping the advertising platforms from using particular kinds of sensitive information as an ad target. So that's things like sexual orientation, race, and religion. Um, And likewise, it will also then give users more of those abilities to opt out of tracking um, and ultimately, yeah, put some more pressure on some of those platforms to actually, you know, cut out a whole bunch of these sorts of targeting options. I guess so much of what happens in targeted advertising, Alice, is in a, it's in a black box. Like we just don't, most of us have no visibility into how it works and most importantly, how it works on us. Do we think that there'll be, that through this process, through this Digital Services Act, we will get to understand a bit more about how advertising works on us? Is that, is that one of the goals here? I think it's one of the goals. I'm not sure if it'll actually work out that way because Facebook and Google make an obscene amount of money with targeted advertising. And if they tell us what goes into the sausage, then there's going to be a lot of problems with their business. So I think they're going to resist releasing information as much as possible. And we do know that um, Democrats in the US have introduced a similar bill quite recently, Seamus. What kind of pushback has there been from, you know, the major tech companies? So there's been a few of these cases where the tech companies have, you know, tried to, okay, I'll, I'll say it in the negative sense, they've tried to act like they're, they're being proactive about these things and, and certainly in some of the political contexts, they have, you know, said that politicians can't target uh, certain kinds of, you know, these sort of demographic dividers and particularly around, you know, election times. 
but it's always hard to know, yeah, at what point did they quietly go, oh, well, actually, we're not going to worry about that so much anymore um, or if it's only around certain windows of time. But also one of the really big areas, you know, outside of those really clear distinctions, there are some of those ways of targeting that do get abused like, uh, you know, sentiment-related, you know, abuse. So there was a story I sort of read uh, last month about about certain kinds of, you know, American churches trying to target people who were in like a, a negative you know, or a, you know, a depressive ebb in their life to try to target them with, you know, with salvation type messages uh, and encourage them to join their churches. So there's sort of all these different ways in which, you know, the large pool of data that they have on us that they can always have those weird little uh, things that put the pieces together and go, okay, somebody's yeah, reading lots of this kind of content, they were recently divorced, they had this, that, the other happened, so they're probably in this kind of a mindset at the moment. Uh, I think there's a lot of that sort of stuff that really does point to the fact that it's almost the combination of these factors that actually makes it so dangerous for targeting sometimes and not just any specific thing around sort of race or religion. Just to play devil's advocate for a second here, Alice, I mean, there is an argument that targeted advertising is a hell of a lot more useful to you than non-targeted advertising. Like you'd rather be advertised something you do want rather than something you don't want and, and targeting is a way to get closer to that. I mean, do you have a lot of patience for that argument? Do you think that argument holds water? Not really. Why would I want ads for things that I do want to encourage me to buy more? If there's something that I want, I'm perfectly capable of Googling around and reading reviews and finding out the best way to get it. There's a thing in targeted advertising where often they will know that you are pregnant before you do. That's just creepy. I don't want the internet to know what I want. I don't even know what I want. Yeah, at the same time, when I was reading this article about the targeted advertising, the ads that I got were for a hoodie that says I'm cold 24-7, which <laughs> I was reading from my 34-degree apartment without air conditioning, so perhaps not accurate. Uh, a woman who put cling wrap on her face in such a way that made dermatologists hate her. And for the hotel that's currently building over my favorite bike path. Now, the bike path thing I found a little bit creepy because I was there yesterday and I, I don't love that the advertiser guessed that. The other two things made me feel fairly safe. They actually don't know me that well. <laughs> Shavis, uh, I guess, I suppose, a balance to be struck here. Does this, does this legislation get us closer to a balance that people and, I guess, users and advertisees should be more comfortable with? I mean, I, I hope we're on that path because, look, there's definitely been that issue of, you know, when it comes to regulation around some of these issues that, again, you know, the companies involved have not really shown sort of good faith progress in limiting some of this targeting. The one thing I will sort of point out as a pro of these kinds of ads is it's actually been a huge win for a lot of small businesses because classic advertising models has meant you needed huge budgets in order to compete with, you know, the major brands of the world and the major retailers who could, you know, spend millions on this sort of stuff. This really has created lots of essentially, you know, micro companies who can create cool, interesting little things and do micro targeted ads that only cost them, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars instead of, you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and so there has been a lot of stats that show that a lot of small businesses have flourished thanks to these kinds of targeting uh, options, but it absolutely has to be, you know, managed in a better way. The 
simple thing is to just give us those better opt-out options so we have a really clear sense of what it is we've agreed to when we sign up for these platforms. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Seamus Byrne, the editor at Byteside and Alice Clark, award-winning freelance journalist. Mark Fennell is my name and we have new online bullying laws. In fact, the Online Safety Act uh, has now passed into law. So what does that mean? If you get bullied online... How have things changed? What are the options available to you? So, uh, Seamus, I'll start with you first. What, what's the biggest, like from a user standpoint, if you're experiencing abuse online, what's the biggest thing that's changed for us now? Uh, yes, yeah, so the really big change here is that if you, let's say it's on a Facebook or a Twitter, that you can report that bullying to the company and they have to remove it within 24 hours if, you know, if they agree that it is, you know, it fits within the the description of what it means to be uh, bullied as an adult online. If you are unhappy with their response, you can then report that to the eSafety Commissioner and it can be reviewed by them and they can then issue a direct notice to the platform to tell them that they absolutely have to uh, you know, hold to that decision or they risk being fined. So let's say it might take a couple of days if they do decide to ignore your initial request. But, you know, within the space of a couple of days, it could be that the safety commissioner gets behind somebody and supports their request for something to be taken down. The key thing here is that they're saying it has to be directly targeted at an individual uh, and it has to be intended to cause harm uh, or menace uh, and things like that. So I guess doxing, things like that, where it's about trying to genuinely put someone in a position of you know critical harassment and threat uh, is the sort of thing that this is targeted at. So they've said that they set the bar deliberately high when it came to a definition of, of bullying. I mean, all three of us at various different points of experience pretty horrific things said about and to us on the internet. The number of times I've seen things that I would classify as actual death threats, particularly on Facebook, and then Facebook turns around and goes, yeah, nah, we don't think it is, makes me less than confident. I mean, maybe just because my experience on the internet. Alice, what actually do you feel like is an appropriate bar to clear for what a definition of, of bullying is? Do you, and do you think this matches that? I think this is a bit above where I would place the bar. Like, thinking back to some of the death threats that I've received, they have all been they have been similar to all gays should die, which is not considered bullying because it is talking about a targeted group and it is hate speech so under this regulation and is not specifically saying that I should die even though it is quite clear that I am being included in that group. And I, I, I'm not sure what your experience of reporting the, to Twitter and Facebook has been like, but quite often I will report that and then get it back that that doesn't actually violate their terms and conditions. I can't speak for, for Twitter so much, but I just think Facebook as an organisation don't take it. I, I don't think they take it very seriously. In, in my personal experience, I don't think they take it very seriously. And I was just trying to get a gauge on whether or not these laws will shift the bar of where things are considered bullying and inappropriate? Yeah, for this, it needs to be pretty specifically, I am going to do this to you at this place and preferably also at this time in this manner. And then that will clear the bar. All you need to do is set, make it a little bit more general or not state how it will be done or when it will be done or where it will be done and you can kind of get around it. 
and and that's not great. It's not doesn't go far enough. Do you think, as a kind of a, a new set of government, as a new set of laws, they actually could have gone further, or would it have created unintended consequences, Seamus? Um, yeah, look, with the whole online safety act uh, that this is a part of, I think you know there's some of the elements of that act that go too far in terms of, you know, giving the e-safety commissioner uh, an awful lot of say over things like adult content that is available in Australia. Um, so there's sort of so many layers to this overarching, you know, new Online Safety Act that it's, you know, it's difficult when we sort of are looking at the subsections of it. I think with this one, it I think it is kind of harder for them to go in at a, you know, by setting the bar, I guess, where they have, I would hope that they would start to at least create that space where they get the system in place so that it really does push these companies to be forced to have a better response mechanism for, you know, Australian citizens who have these complaints and are seeing these issues because there's no question they're out there. Uh, and And then, you know, over time see if they can improve it. It's funny that one of the examples of what is not covered is things like purely reputational damage. That's often something that Twitter does protect, uh, you know, some people from, you know, particularly politicians and people who might want to have a, a whinge about what other people are saying about them on the internet. Um, so it's sort of funny that there's gaps here that actually, you know, in some regards I'm like, well, yeah, you wouldn't want them to be able to just enforce the complaint of, you know, a politician because someone said something mean about them. But having something that at least has that clarity of saying, okay, there are, you know, there's a certain kind of threatening behaviour that is absolutely now, you know, actionable in a way that means they will have to start paying fines if they don't take these seriously. Because again, a bit like the last topic as well, right, these companies say they're doing so much to help, but actually, you know, the reality on the ground is that people are copying this stuff way too often and you know we'd hope that at least the start of this kind of a process might get us to a point where they they have to put the systems in place to you know start being better at this yeah and it's probably worth pointing out that um there is a review process in place the decision can also be appealed by the administrative appeals tribunal but that that purely reputational damage line is fascinating to me because i don't know what that means (laughs) like like it's such a broad concept alice do you get a sense of what purely reputational damage actually would mean in this context? I suppose it would be something that you could use the Prime Minister's anti-trolling laws to sue for defamation. So the example would be that tweet about Peter Dutton that uh, he sued a refugee advocate for defamation over this six-word tweet and won. So that kind of thing wouldn't be covered by these anti-bullying laws, but it would be covered by these other laws. So I guess it's because they don't want to double dip on that. Do you think this is going to have a market change on the way people interact online, Seamus? (laughs) No, I desperately wish it does. And maybe in a few months' time it'll all be roses and loveliness on the social platforms. No, look, you know, we have to keep taking steps. We have to try as much as... Uh, it does feel like we've reached a point where there is, you know, the, the forces of evil are stacked against us. I think we have to try our best to improve the discourse that exists out there. Download the show is what you're listening to. Lastly on the show, it is the game that dominated the summer across Australia. Uh, I don't mean just checking daily COVID numbers. I mean Wordle. Uh, Wordle has become this 
do you know what? Actually, I'm going to let you, Alice, explain what Wordle is. If you, if you haven't seen it pop up on, on Twitter, people posting these multicolored squares that somehow indicate that they managed to work out a, a word faster or slower than other people. Just walk me through the basics of, of what Wordle is. Wordle is a beautifully simple game where you go to a website, uh, powerofanguage.co.uk, and you have six tries to guess a five-letter word. And when you get a letter correct but in the wrong space, it turns yellow. And then if you get it correct in the correct space, it turns green. And then that gives you clues to go from there. And it's wonderful on many levels. The first being that it is a website, not an app, so it's more accessible. The second, that it's so easy to share without spoiling anyone. And the third is that it tells you which sociopaths in your friendship group are using light mode instead of dark mode because the colors of the question. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Which one makes you a sociopath? The light mode or the dark mode? The light mode. Oh. I, I, I guess this is very subjective, but yes. <laughs> Do you reckon? <laughs> just a little bit. Just, just a, a touch. touch. Look, sometimes you just have to throw a drama grenade out there and see what happens. Does it, Seamus, say something about the headspace that people all around the world were in that this very simple, unassuming game blew up massively over a summer of Omicron and other things like that. Is it, does it, do you think it says something about where we were all at mentally that it became such a huge hit, Seamus? Uh, so it's funny that it, this was launched originally in October, but it was actually December 16 when the creator Josh Wardle and thus the Wordle. Oh, my God. Wait, uh, wait hold on. Me. That's where it comes from? His name is Wardle? Yeah, W-A-R-L-W-A-R-D-L-E and so Wordle. Totally makes sense. Oh, and he, my, and yeah, he just made it, made it for his girlfriend, you know, just a fun little project. Um, but December 16 was the day that he added the social sharing. And that really was the moment when it blew up. So, you know, this tiny little game, suddenly when you played it, the fact that you could share this, you know, mysterious set of boxes uh, onto your social media profiles and, of course, people who weren't playing would be like, what the hell is this? Because it didn't include a link. Even, like, it was so subtle about it, it didn't try to force people to click here to join in. Uh, you had to be it curious was just, if you wanted to find yeah. out. Yeah. And uh, and so, of course, yeah, for quite a few days there was a lot of that. What the hell is what? I'm, I'm not going to find out. I don't even want to know what it is <laughs> uh, as it sort of spread further and further. But, uh, you know, just such a, a clever little thing. And the fact that it's, as uh, Alice said, by not being an app, it's just like a simple thing that you can have on your phone. Uh, you can play it. The creator, again, has pointed out he has no interest in putting ads all over it. He just wants it to be this pleasant gift to the world. And in that sense, I think that is the lovely part of this emerging in the midst of uh, all our, you know, Omicron often self, uh, you know, self uh, created, you know, lockdowns, if you will, that we're hanging out, but you can get up each morning and just relax into another day of one Wordle because there's only one a day. Once you've done it, that's it. You have to wait until tomorrow. Uh, it's, I think it's just lovely. One thing that's worth pointing out, even though uh, Josh Wardle is clearly an angel who has released this joy upon the world, uh, there are others, because of the nature of it, have basically cloned the game and released it on app stores for profit. Has that gone well, Alice? No. And I'm really <laughs> glad that it hasn't gone well because every single one of these copycat cretins has added some kind of subscription mechanism and then covered it in ads. And that completely goes against what Wordle is all about. 
it's not about having yet another subscription service to add to your pile of 20 that slowly bleed you dry every month. <laughs> it's just this one beautiful moment a day that you can then share in the group chat with your aunt and your mum to discuss a word for 10 minutes and then go back to the rest of your day. It's just a beautiful way of keeping in touch and having a good time and not giving money to some faceless arsehole. Long may it rain. Alice, thanks so much for joining us on the show this week. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Alice Clark is an award-winning freelance journalist. And Seamus Byrne, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Very, very welcome. Always good to be here. Seamus Byrne is there an equally award-winning editor at Side. With that, I shall leave you. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to encounter us on. It's a joy to be back here with you. My name has been and will likely continue to be Mark Nell. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Download This Show.